Welcome to Arconnect Sessions, episode 31. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. On this week's show, we'll be sharing a recent conversation with James Bieber, designer of the Milan Expo U.S. Pavilion, American Food 2.0, United to Feed the Planet. How's everyone doing? Pretty dandy. Feeling united to feed the planet. <laughs> Donna, how's your week been? My week has been good. Catching up from the AIA convention still. I feel like I'm so behind at work. But the other thing that's on my plate this week is my son's school does a spring fling fair and I am the chairperson of the food committee. So it works great because I've got food on my mind and what we're talking about this week. We're an international baccalaureate program, which means we focus on global culture. And so our food theme is hot dogs around the world. And we're going to sell hot dogs inspired by the cuisine of various nations at the uh, Spring Fling. So I've been putting together a Chicago dog, which is the American dog. With tomatoes? Chicago dog is tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, onions, ketchup. Man, it's a whole bunch of stuff. I feel like I'm leaving something else off. They call it the, the hot dog that got dragged through the garden, which I think is a lovely <laughs> phrase. We're doing a Japan dog, Japan dog, which is um, daikon and that Cupid doll must mayo from Japan. I don't know if you guys have seen that. It's like a special Japanese mayo. And then we're doing a Cubano dog, which is Swiss cheese and pickles and hot mustard and jalapenos. Ooh. Will there be a hot dog representing the vegan nation? We will have vegetarian dogs, yes, because we always get requests for them. But it's like 10% of what we end up selling. So it's very small. So I've been focusing on that. We're supposed to have great weather Friday. It's a bit, you know, it's, I'm making 350 hot dog meals. So it's big. It's a pretty big <laughs> undertaking. So that's been keeping me busy this week. Architecturally, haven't done too much. Ken, what about you? Why is it that Chicago always does that to food? I don't understand that. Drags it through the garden? Well, they say garden, but it sounded like something else. They always mess up pizza. They mess up hot dogs. I mean... Chicago is not subtle with their food. No. That's a very good way to put it. But I also have to say, Chicago is a pretty great food city, too, if you have a big appetite. Mm. If you have the appetite, exactly. <laughs> no, they don't put French fries on everything, which when you go to Pittsburgh, that's what they do. French fries on everything. <laughs> you know, I'll have a salad dressing on the side, no meat, and they'll dump French fries on top. Really? Yeah. That sounds like a boon. I'm just seeing free French fries out of all this. Yeah. You can't avoid the French fries in Pittsburgh. Try it. How was your week, Ken? Interesting. Um, nice short week this week. So that's been great. Um, been working with the butchers on their new project and their new space and had an interesting email yesterday. So I'm learning as a professional how to deal with this particular situation. So it's uh, kind of striking. Their financiers want to me to cut my fee a little bit. They want me to cut my fee. So I made a, a slight cut. I said, anything beyond that, I said, we're going to have to sit down and talk. You know, and I explained to the, my client that, you know, I understand that you recognize my value on this project and I can't go beyond that unless I sit down in front of them and kind of demonstrate why this project is different than the other one, just because some things are getting reused in the new project doesn't necessarily mean that this is actually simpler. In fact, it's more complex. The situation's different building, completely different issues regarding code. And so I said, anything beyond what I'm offering to you as a good faith effort is um, going to require me to sit down and have a discussion. And they're going to have to explain to me why they think they need to see me cut this fee further. So yeah, you got to stand up for that. Some good friends of mine are just finishing up a, a retail project that, I mean, they're the owners of the shop and they made the bad decision of going with one of the lower bids for the design and build out of it. And they're totally regretting it now because they realized that they ended up spending so much more money on changes and fixes. I mean, if they just went with the more experienced and better designer, they would have been much better off. But sometimes people just have to learn the hard way, I guess. Yeah. And it's even more frustrating with this particular situation because the space was, you know, everything was 
design it. And honestly, it should have been, the construction would have been pretty close to being done by now. And on some level, I feel a little bit of frustration because this wasn't, this miss in the lease and how that didn't work out wasn't anything had to do with me as an architect or my clients specifically. It had to do with kind of, you know, penny wise, pound foolish attitude of some individuals. And that hesitancy to kind of get the situation resolved created this new situation. So now the financiers want to go out and rebid and they somehow on some weird plane of existence, they think that rebidding the project is a smart thing to do. They're going to get better numbers. Well, the project was bid about three or four months ago. And in the winter, when when you know no one has a real forecast of what's happening in construction in the summer, but now that people have a measured understanding of what's going to happen for construction in the summer, and now you think that the budget numbers are going to come back more favorable to your position, and they have a ridiculous deadline, and you know I've got to turn drawings around probably in a month, so they're going to learn the hard way very fast that this is not the best thing for them to do. And I've advised them. I've advised the client. I said, look, you know. They're poisoning the well by rebidding this project. Anyone who has submitted will not submit better numbers because they don't want to piss off the general contractor who, you know, if they submit a lower number and then somehow that jeopardizes future work with that particular contractor. So, you know, but they'll learn. And, you know, and like I said, I explained to the client today, I said, look, they want more. They're going to have to sit down with me and we're going to have to work something out that's, you know, favorable to me. Yeah, exactly. Meatless meat forever. Are you still working in tandem with the other architect for the job or is this all your job at this point? Well, to a lesser degree, I was talking with him about this last night. I had a meeting with him and um, his role, he even said that he's too busy to handle this project right now. In fact, he said, if you walked away from the project, I can't take this project on. I'm going to have to refer it out. So his role is going to be greatly diminished because there's not a whole lot of role for him. He hasn't even been to the site. There's no real need. And again, I think I'm trying to do a really high wire act in the sense that I'm trying to make sure I maintain relationships, not burn bridges and, you know, think about the future and this particular client when they want to build out locations in other cities. So I'm trying to be professional, but I know my value and I'm not taking anything lying down. (laughs) I really hope that people who have been listening to the podcast and following all of this are learning from your experience, Ken. It's really gracious of you to share it with us because when you're going out on your own and you start to have these direct client relationships, it's a huge learning curve. And And I think anyone who has started their own business or tried this out in the last five years since the recession, whatever, has realized this, that we're sort of taught a ideal path through, you know, programming professional practice, uh, you know, through the, all the phases of the work. And they are really, it's a wicked problem. Every single project is a wicked problem. There's financiers, there's investors, there's banks that won't loan in this neighborhood, but they will across the street. Or it, There are just so many balls to keep in the air and so many forces that are beyond our control. And if you can maintain professionalism through all of it, like you are doing and like you've been talking about on the podcast, it's a really valuable lesson for anyone out there, young people that are trying this out. So thanks for sharing all of this with us, even though it's frustrating sometimes. Yeah, I, just to one last point, I think what's making it easier for me is that I do have a job. So I want this client, I want them to succeed. And so my my interest is really about making sure that they have a successful project and a successful outcome and that I look good in that and, and then they think about me going forward. But I have some measure of, you know, I have some confidence confidence behind me in that, you know, well, if you tell me you need me to cut the fee by 10,000, I'm going to be very upfront that you're just going to have to find somebody else. And, and I know what I've lost in that. And unfortunately, I have, there's no way on this plan I'm going to do that for $10,000 less. And uh, they're going to have to find another architect 
who's going to do it for a fee that's going to be less than what I'm doing it for and the time frame that they. So it's a little bit of, um, what do you call it? Uh, chicken. You know, I'm planning to give a chicken. It's a bad move to try to underbid a designer in general. But I mean, especially in this market, you're obviously invested in this project out of a, you know, a passion for the client and the project, because as you said, you already have a job. You don't need this project. But, you know, anyone that's going to underbid and you know, get it and, you know, lose money or whatever. I mean, it's not somebody that anybody should be wanting to hire. Right. I mean, if you're that desperate for work, then there's a red flag. <laughs> yeah. And once this whole thing is resolved, Ken, which maybe it never will be, but we should totally go back through our old episodes and kind of knit together a cohesive narrative of your time with the butchers. Because I think, Donna, as you said before, it is an incredibly valuable lesson to people who are thinking of doing something similar, striking out on their own in any capacity. And I cannot, whenever you have stories to tell from this uh, perspective, it's kind of like a diaristic function where it's like you checking in with us, we get to hear about like whatever the recent trials and tribulations are. And then it just like every time it seems something like different has come up and it's sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad, but Exactly. It's always good to hear. It's always interesting. It's like that. Do you guys listen to the Startup Podcast? Yes. Yeah, totally thinks of that. I mean, the Startup Podcast is really one of the most interesting podcasts I've ever come across because it provides this transparency into the process of starting up a business. And it gets into all this like nitty gritty stuff that nobody ever hears about, but it's the reality. And it's the kind of stuff that a lot of people don't like to share. So yeah, your updates on this project reminds me of that. I mean, it really is an incredibly valuable lesson that people can take with them and, you know, and, and uh, keep in mind. Can I add one more thing that happened over the weekend? So I hired a graphic design student and to brand my, uh, create my brand. Does this involve fire yeah, and exactly. hot iron? <laughs> No, I said, go to Mad Max Fury Road and look at that branding that they do in yeah. the movie and come back and we'll do something. <laughs> no, and, and she came up with a very, very great concept. And I, I was floored because it, it's nothing I ever would have come up with. I never in a million years would have saw myself. So that's a great lesson to me in understanding when I'm talking with a client, how we interpret the things that we're being told. And so I was telling her about myself and how I got interested in architecture and why this name is the way it is. And she came up with a, you know, a concept that was completely adult and professional and has this whole thing. And and we're going to meet again. I asked her just a couple of changes and see what they look like. And so I think a lot of times the architects tend to think that we can actually do everything. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you don't say. Yeah. So this is one area where I've done it in the past and it, it always kind of spoke to some kind of visceral part of me, but it never really said to, when I looked at it, it never really said this is a professional. And what's great about what she's put together is that it doesn't say architect either. And that's what I really, really enjoyed about it because my idea of what my business ultimately will become is to work with various design disciplines and to create this kind of almost atelier where we, you know, have our own separate identities and we go after our own projects. But if there's a way we can knit the working relationship together to create architecture, graphic design, product design, all in one thing, then that'd be great. So I, the way the the logo and the way the idea for the card and, and all of the branding, it just says to me that resonated with me and it doesn't say architect. And I love that part about it. So that's the other great thing that happened all weekends. I got to see something that I never thought I would see. And it's a very strange thing to see somebody, someone has a vision of you through their own eyes that you just don't see. And you kind of go, you know what? There's something about that I like. And I didn't never think I would ever come up with something like that. Can we uh, post it in the show notes, your branding? 
Or is it not yet ready for public consumption? You know what? I would wait one more because I what I'd like to do is uh, show... Th- one, more iteration. one more iteration. One more iteration. I saw them and I think it's fantastic. And there's process involved in it and it's which I, which I really like. So it was it really spoke to me and spoke to my sensibilities. So, so Paul, how's your weekend? My week's been good. Not much to speak about architecturally, so I should keep this short to avoid any uh, nasty comments. <laughs> but uh, I did see, I did end up finally seeing Ex Machina on the weekend. And there's definitely an architectural component to that because the setting was quite stunning, including the architecture, which was really beautiful. It's actually a project called the Juvet Landscape Hotel in the, like, uh, the wilderness of Norway. And by the time this podcast goes live, we should have a little, a little uh, post on Arconnect talking about the actual project. So I recommend checking that out and I recommend checking out the movie if you like, you know, that kind of uh, near future science fiction technology type of films that I'm a total sucker for. I tend to enjoy these types of movies so much that I, you know, I kind of gloss over the imperfections film wise, but it was very fun. Do you know the architect of the project? I guess we'll know by the time the feature yeah, goes Yeah, I know that, I know that Jensen is in the name. Jensen, <laughs> I think, I think the abbreviation was J- JSO. Amelia, this sounds like you're, maybe you, you need to take this over having more familiarity with that part of the world. As the Danes and most of Scandinavia see the Norwegians, they are quite a quiet and they are their own kind of separate community that really don't, they're, they're very stoic and very silent and they keep to themselves. So well, this I, is exactly I don't know much about them this, other than their authors. Well, this building is very much like that. It's very stoic and very uh, isolated. Well, and actually, it's uh, it's interesting because I thought for sure, because whenever, you know, when we post news on Arconnect, we always have, uh, we reference the related firm in our firm section. And most firms, you know, that we talk about on Arconnect already have a profile on Arconnect, but this one didn't. And we've never mentioned anything by this firm before on Arconnect ever in the, in any section in the discussion forum or in the news or features or whatever. So I'm really interested to learn more about this firm because the, the work was really beautiful. Yeah, I still haven't seen the film, but I've seen the work now and I'm totally even more convinced now that I have to see the movie because it looks so beautiful. And any type of near future thing that also uses actors from, like I recently saw Oscar Isaac, who is one of the main characters in Ex Machina. He was in that recent Coen Brothers movie. um, What is it called? Lewin Davis. So he plays this completely different mm. character, this character in like a, a folk uh, 1960s New York City and then goes into Ex Machina. And I think it's always interesting when actors play with things like that. I was trying to figure out where I recognize him from. I, I also recognize the other main male character from an episode of A Black Mirror, it's which all is also it's, it's a very uh, if you like Black Mirror, you're going to like this movie. So I, I will just cut in just to say that I don't have much to share about this weekend other than I took a pretty cool trip out to Malibu last Friday to meet with um, some couple potential Arconnect feature subjects. I was meeting in particular with this one woman who runs a design consultation firm that specializes in psychotherapy and basically psychological readings of clients to assist in the consultation of a specific design space and her practice is still getting off the ground and so it hasn't doesn't have a lot of um, a lot of client list to it quite yet but um, I met with her out in Malibu to visit a building site that she's currently consulting on out on the ocean there and just talk to her about what kind of work she does with architects and kind of figure out how exactly she uses her background as a psychotherapist and being at actually having a psychotherapy degree and having clients as a psychotherapist and how she uses that particular skill set and entire training, entire educational training to assist in, in a consultation gig for architects. Really interesting work, really interesting job. Still kind of unclear as to how everything actually comes together because it's a very, very fraught idea of trying to you know, sit someone down on a, 
literally on a couch, get them to spill your guts and then use that in somehow realizing a physical space. It's kind of a little bit like people will happily make the comparison to palm reading at this point. But I think it's really interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, And palm reading people like psychic industry in LA is booming. People totally go to psychics all the time and love their psychics. But the point being just that she's still developing exactly what this kind of firm, this kind of consultation will be. But there has been so much other research going on and like how we're better understanding our psychological responses to different environments different spaces that I'm really excited to see where it goes. And aside from that, the only last thing I want to mention is just kind of like an aside plug for um, this project that I've been working on for a while, as well as uh, I've mentioned on the podcast before for the a board game about Los Angeles that I've been working on with my husband. And we are about to finish a second iteration of it and um, submit it to this gaming convention in Culver City that takes place in October. So I just wanted to nerd out a little bit about that for a moment. We're really excited about how the second phase is happening. I've spoken a little bit about this before, but the whole idea of trying to design something that not only has its own internal logics and mechanisms for progress, but also is fun to play is one of the most (laughs) difficult things I've ever done. And it's super fun to try to do. And I just only hope that it's super fun for people who actually want to play it. So you have to bring it into the office. We'll be some (laughs) guinea pigs for you. Yes, I hope to do that. We've had one focus group. It sounds so serious. We've had one focus play group before where we brought in like a dozen people and had them play and got some really great feedback that way. Because that's really the only way you can see whether it works. It's just people have to play it. So does it have a name? What's it called? Its current name is As It Lays, the new LA game, which is a really just straight up steal from a Joan Didion essay about Los Angeles as titled As It Lays, Play It As It Lays. So it's a double pun because you're referencing As It Lays and play in the game title. Yeah, yeah. So now that I've sucked all the fun out of you getting the joke itself just by explaining it, that's the current title and we are submitting it to the convention under that name. So when you see it hitting all of the, you know, the publications and everyone writing about it, <laughs> you'll know it's our game. It's very exciting. It is It is quite an undertaking to design a game. I That to me is very intimidating. So bravo to you. It's still intimidating to me, but we're, we're going to keep doing it. And hopefully we don't get totally bored with it by the time it works. So very exciting. But let's move on to our, our major news topics for this week. We kind of inadvertently struck a food chord, <laughs> <laughs> the hot dog key podcast in the key of hot dogs. All that food in Atlanta giving us tunnel vision. Yeah. yeah, still recovering from it. Although I'm guessing that the food in Milan is probably a little bit better. Maybe. Yeah. Who knows? Um, But before we get there, we just wanted to talk a little bit about this recent update in a kind of a a pet story that I've been really attached to and I'm really interested in about combining architectural preservation and kind of vernacular architecture of food, where we have fast food restaurants. Famous example of this is Norm's Restaurant in Los Angeles, one particular location on La Cienega and kind of the post like Mid Wilshire-ish near Beverly Center. Anyway, it's in a very like well-known, highly trafficked part of town. And it's this perfect example of googie architecture and fast food wonderfulness. And it recently received finally the stamp of historical and cultural landmark status, which means that at least at this point, it's going to be nearly impossible to tear it down with the status. It's kind of a, still an interesting project, though, because a lot of the things that got it pushed into this final historical status had to do with kind of these outside factors, kind of celebrity coming in and advocating for the space. There was a recent instance where Matthew Weiner, the creator of Mad Men, I don't know if he was the one who organized it, but he just, there was this press conference held outside of the norms with Matthew Weiner explaining, we must save this location because I thought of Mad Men here. 
And, <laughs> and it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a gnarly card to play because it's like, well, you know, we still bulldozed, Tom Maine still bulldozed the house where Fahrenheit 451 was written, probably. But does that really matter? Like, it's kind of a strange thing to bring into the debate when you're making claims that this is the reason other cultural item exists is because I was in this place. So I know Donna and Ken, you guys are not being bathed in the Southern California sunshine. So maybe you don't have the same doe eyes that we have out here about romanticizing things like norms. But in general, do you think that these kinds of architectural preservation debates around things like, say, a norms restaurant or a Waffle House or a McDonald's or whatever, are these useful pieces of architecture to have these kinds of debates around? What are your thoughts about the architectural significance of these kinds of buildings? You know, it's it's funny when we were talking about this earlier, I, the first thing that came to mind, and maybe it's the wrong thing to think about, was uh, how people are trying to save certain languages from dying. So I was drawing an immediate connection to that. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting, I was looking at some of the photographs of norms, and, and this wasn't something that they universally did all of. This was a particular location. So um, while it does represent a particular style in L.A., it would have been more interesting. It, it would have probably more resonance with me if all of the norms were designed like this. And it doesn't seem to be the case. Um, so there really isn't any kind of who's found this weird architect who designed this one weird building. And now it's now it's this kind of um, this um, part of this historic registry. Whereas the, you know, the other one we were going to be talking about, the Waffle House, for the most part, universally was designed to be a certain way and look a certain way. So that, to me, had a little bit more resonance with the backlash. I think what I was reading about some of the Waffle Houses that were being designed new. So I like the I like this particular building. I just wish it was more part of uh, integrated into their brand as a, as a kind of a identifiable style, the way some of the other buildings have um, done over time. So... It's like a, what is it? It's a, a paradox. The Waffle House is so iconic because there are so many of them and they all look the same. And you know, when you see those exactly. letters, they call them in the article, the Scrabble letters. When you see them off in the distance on the highway, you know what's coming. Yeah. But in a way, they're more valuable because it is so identifiable. It's such a successful branding of a building. But in a way, then that makes them less valuable because there's just so damn many of them. You know, they're everywhere. I find it kind of heartbreaking that they're changing that iconic design. Um you know, to go to something more contemporary that'll, you know, resonate more with people. And to me, the Waffle House, outside of the very recognizable brand, I'm sure there are millions of American citizens who have in high school, you know, spent their Friday evenings hanging out at the Waffle House with their buddies or in college after taking a hard exam or something. And that to me gets to what your Amelia, your, I'm sorry, I forgot now the writer. Matthew Weiner. Thank you. You know, that People spending time in the Waffle House, that becomes part of your cultural history. And Matthew Weiner's role in the norms sounds like it's that kind of role where people go there and they hang out and they, you know, it's their third place, right? This notion of the third place. It's not home. It's not work. It's somewhere else that you're doing that you're living. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, James Bieber, who were, who's on this, our interview with him is on the show today. I was listening to a podcast episode on uh, Debbie Millman's podcast, Design Matters, from I think the interview was a few years ago. But he, he was specifically talking about Waffle House and how he loves Waffle House, as he described it, the lowest common denominator in American food that's just, uh, you know, has this multicultural, multiracial, multimodal kind of connection between between our culture. And I mean, he described how, you know, when you design a museum as an architect, you make 
an impact on society, but that doesn't even compare to the kind of impact on society that you would have by redesigning Waffle House, which I thought was a really interesting comment, you know, that addressed the kind of the more wide ranging influence it has on our society. Well, it kind of goes hand in glove with our sentimental and our sense of nostalgia that we have here in the States, that something that's so integrated into our experiences. I mean, I would say probably my best and worst experiences with food have happened at a Waffle House. <laughs> and, and I'm not even from the South. And uh, the two times I've been in the Waffle Houses have both been in the South. And I really had a pleasant experience in uh, Atlanta for breakfast. And the people there was just watching the, the activity of this. It seemed it was interesting because it seemed like that there was too many staff there for the actual people that were there. But they ran the place so well. And they were so the food, everything was just exactly what you expect expected to be out of a diner. And, you know, East Coast are pretty famous for their diners. And this is really kind of the same thing, but on a really a much more uniformly interesting architectural scale. And and I thought that the one thing that was about that struck me about the design for the new space is that how boring it was and how much this would be such a great design problem to have. I was as soon as I saw it, I'm like, oh, this is an easy and fun project to work out a really nice solution that incorporates all of their past. So yeah, the Waffle House is an interesting comparison because in a way it has this kind of guided and designed by the same principles of the Googie and the norms is that it was designed to be recognizable from a highway, shining out the light, really straightforward and easily recognizable. But it seems like the kind of major arguments in how each place is being used as a reason why we should preserve them or preserve a certain look of them, it seemed to kind of be going in different directions. Like the reason why we want to preserve this norms in particular is not only because it's an example of the of the Googie architecture, but it's also this one in particular one that we can attach these celebrity narratives to and everything, which kind of goes against the whole idea of it's like completely a just a people's space where it's totally generic in a way and it's totally predictable and just fulfills whatever fast food franchised architecture it needs to fulfill. In another piece that came up this week regarding one of the proposed Waffle House designs, people referenced Waffle House as kind of just like you could always rely on it for so many different things. It was so reliable, in fact, that FEMA has a Waffle House index because they're open 24 hours. And so in the course of a disaster, natural disaster, anything that you can rely on Waffle Houses to a degree to give you, you know, maybe if they're still operating food or at least shelter or some modicum of safety. You know, I've never, I can't know if that's in fact, you know, always the most reliable thing, but it's kind of like that opportunity isn't what we're also lauding norms for. We're lauding norms for something a little bit more specific. And in the case of LA, there's this other highly contextual programmatic architecture tradition that kind of also flavors things. Oh, terrible, inadvertent food pun. But we have this other kind of ongoing debate that's, I think, much more like within Los Angeles in particular, because it's such a ridiculous thing. But we have this other building called the Tamale Building, which is literally a cylindrical shaped, like messy stucco cylinder shaped building that initially was meant to sold tamales. It no longer does that. I believe it sells, it's a dental laboratory, but people love this thing. They get off of tour buses to take photos of it. There are tour buses designed just to visit it, just in line with the Randy's Donuts donut and another programmatic architecture, the tail of the pup, these like hot dog stands, speaking of hot dogs, that actually was shaped like a hot dog or the tail of a dog. And this one other, the Brown Derby, which was a restaurant shaped like a derby hat. So these were like classic in LA and you could see them all over the place and they were like all the same icons set up all over the city. And so now that people get really infested about these architectural debates on whether we should save the tamale or save norms, I think what it makes the defining argument comes in when you actually have a distinguishing factor of like a celebrity coming in and attaching a narrative to it or simply just someone who's willing to buy it. <laughs> 
they love it so much they're buying it. You know, the tamale restaurant, you know, I went and looked at the, the, the tamale restaurant is really not that impressive <laughs> as a duck, as one of yeah. uh, Robert Venturi's ducks. It's just kind of a curvy stucco building. But if I can go back just for a second to the FEMA index, which I just find delightful that, you know, if a Waffle House is green, that means it's good. If it's yellow, that means it's on a limited menu, which means they're not getting supplies in properly. And if it's red, that means they're not working at all. And that means, okay, we've got a serious disaster. I love this as a rating system, but it puts me in the mind of um, John Green wrote a book with two other authors, three short stories called Let It Snow. It's a holiday book. And um, a lot of it takes place in a Waffle House. And so they all set their characters in the same Waffle House, mostly teenagers. And it's it's about, you know, a, a historic snowstorm and places get snowed out and you can't get your car out and you end up walking along the highway and there's the Waffle House. So the notion of it as a FEMA marker, I just love. I find it delightful. Yeah, I immediately thought of the McDonald's serving as kind of journalist outposts whenever there's some type of domestic unrest situation and, and journalists or press will flood to a certain area. You constantly get these packed McDonald's full of people with laptops just needing the outlets. So I'm sure there's a McDonald's index somewhere <laughs> floating around on some, uh, on some person's resource list. There's the Big Mac in index to gauge the global economy. I was not aware of that. Really? No. Big Mac index, yeah. They, they price the Big Mac at McDonald's all around the world. and uh, Depending on the relative cost, it tells you how well off the country is. I believe More so. Less. I should uh, revisit that. Oh, man. They should just melt it all down and see what like the corn syrup index is, and then we'll figure it out. So should we get into the Bieber conversation? And we can confirm that is how you pronounce his name. I was a little bit concerned at the beginning, um, not knowing exactly how to pronounce it. Jim Bieber's name. But he was great. He was really wonderful to talk to. Um, no relation to Justin. No relation as far as I know. And spelled differently. And, yes. And spelled differently. Well, you know, who knows? Maybe they are related and it was all a PR thing. We had a great conversation with him in particular speaking about the U.S. Expo or the U.S. Pavilion at the Milan Expo and his whole relationship to a kind of industrial food culture that is not used in a derogatory sense, but simply is like what the U.S. is able to contribute to what agriculture needs to look like in the upcoming years to be able to support a rapidly changing planet. And we spoke a lot about a, a fair amount of things, but um, I think one of the major topics that came up has to do with the kind of integrating in a helpful but also honest way the type of corporate sponsorship that goes into things like this. And a lot of discussion around the expo itself has dealt with the difficulties of dealing with these large scale World's Fair kind of conventions that how do you actually produce an image of a national culture's food system in a way that isn't like either completely whitewashed or um, completely just in unintelligible or, or boring or so. so. That was one of the major topics. And I think it was a really, he was very forthcoming and very interesting to talk to. All right, let's go ahead and listen to the conversation. I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about what you find innovative about American agricultural and food production and how you try to represent that in the architecture. Well, Think should talk in detail about the content. I can tell you that American Food 2.0 is based in part on the premise that people don't really understand how good American food is. Certainly the best chefs in the world understand that their colleagues in, in the U.S. are their peers. Probably the average person doesn't realize that food in the U.S. is, is more than hamburgers and hot dogs. And in some places that's not entirely true, but it, but, it's, but it is true on the whole. But also that the U.S. does more to deal with the issues of hunger and sort of food security in the future than any other nation. This the, the, the premise of the exhibition portion of the content is that in 2050, there'll be 9 billion people on Earth. And that's 2 billion more than now. We can barely feed the 
seven billion we have now. And so what exactly are people going to do to address that issue? And so a lot of the exhibit is based on all of those policy questions. And what would you say is the most significant policy question then at this point? You know, if I answer, I'll be answering for the State Department. You know, my personal opinion doesn't actually matter in this. You know, some people would say that it's distribution of food. Some people would say, you know, would make a strong argument for GMOs. Others would make a strong argument for getting rid of monoculture. You know, there are lots of arguments to be made, but the pavilion is actually simply a place for arguments or for discussion, I should say, for debate. It's not presenting a resolution of those questions. And I should say, by the way, that, you know, at the expo, because I've spent a little bit of time there, and strangely, until the expo opened, I basically hadn't been in any other pavilion. But as soon as it opened, I did manage to go to a a bunch of pavilions, but not all. I think that the U.S. actually has probably has the the most serious content of any of the exhibits that I saw. It really tries to address serious food issues as opposed to being a travelogue. Lots of the pavilions are simply advertisements to come visit and taste great food in your country here. Jim, um, that was one of my first thoughts about when I looked at your design for the pavilion is that having seen some of the controversy in the past and some of the designs, it seems like the American pavilion has generally followed what you said about the other pavilions. And this one is so loaded with content that I was like quite awestruck by how, I mean, these things tend to be even political footballs. And somehow if they get into the mainstream media that they get kicked around and you wind up getting the the stick of whatever political climate that exists out there that wants to beat on the designer. How did you manage to construct or design something that's so important and conveys a a really strong message about America's involvement in supplying a lot of the food for the undeveloped world? You know, I think that everyone, including the government at this point, the State Department is our client, but everyone would agree that the way that these pavilions are funded is problematic. The U.S. government cannot give a single penny to support the U.S. presence at expos, at World's Fairs, which means that the State Department has to put out an RFP to be answered by private teams, you know, teams that are ultimately planning to form a nonprofit to build, run, and fundraise for the pavilion from private, you know, from private sources, from mostly corporations. And so that model almost inherently can skew the message very strongly. At the very least, what it does is it tends to make the entire expression subject to the most difficult part, which is fundraising. You know, and so while we acknowledge that that is a difficult piece of this and our process was no different than anyone else's, we were really intent on undoing what we perceived as years and maybe decades of increasing insularity and increasing a model for the U.S. pavilion that was increasingly opaque and followed the kind of linear one door in, one door out, and a couple of movies and a gift shop, and in our case, a trade show in between. And so we were really intent on on completely reversing that. The State Department was amazing. So I think part of the answer to your question is it depends on the team that wins. We were lucky enough to win, although sometimes I have to admit that right after we won, I thought, did we actually win? We have to raise all this money now. So it wasn't it wasn't really clear we had won. But, you know, we've built a pavilion and the State Department is so proud of it. It's really remarkable. It's not as though... So I don't think that they drove the designs. I think they were really excited to see something that was so expansive, transparent, inviting. It's almost the only pavilion, or it's one, I should say, it's not the only. It's one of a very few pavilions at the Expo that don't have a queue out in front and yet are accepting hordes of people. There's no line. There's no massive 
hours long wait to get into the U.S. pavilion, which is, you know, part of how we engineered it. But, you know, the sense of transparency and the sense of the invitation to enter and the kind of social space that it creates are almost without equal at the, at the expo. So we're, you know, I'm really proud of it because it what we had predicted in terms of the behavior there is actually the case. But also it says something, I think, kind of aspirational about the pavilion as a U.S. pavilion. You know, it's tricky. It's a very daunting task. Here we are attempting to represent the USA in a single building and not my opinion of the current political climate of the USA and not anyone's propaganda about the USA, but simply a kind of picture, a, a snapshot, a book cover, so to speak, that is inviting or that, that's that's iconic enough to be interesting and believable and all the rest. And so, you know, that is a really daunting task. And that's where that's where I lost most of my sleep over the past couple of years, whether the design would in fact live up to that. Well, for me, when you when hearing you talk about it and looking at the work, the optimism and aspirational qualities of the of the piece uh, strike me because I think one of the things I read was openness, transparency, and accessibility. I mean, you talked about how hard it was before to queue into some of the uh, American pavilions because of just ridiculously long lines. And as you just mentioned, this was very accessible. And I wonder, you know, when you create something like this, that it definitely shows something that I think most people outside of America would not expect because what I remember in the past were just these horrid showpieces that kind of express the ostentatious, audaciousness of American kind of exceptionalism. And I think there's an understated and really kind of restrained and very accessible part of this that I was quite struck by. And I saw one of your renderings where you have people repelling off the side of the structure. And I was wondering, is that is that something that's still going to happen? Or is there some kind of dance that is going to happen? First of all, thank you. And I would say that some people have said that, you know, a 20 by 30 foot logo on, on, you know, on the side of the building isn't exactly understated. But I appreciate the point that it at least is a, is an entirely kind of transparent offering. You can literally see through the pavilion and, it, and air literally passes. You know, there are no enclosing walls. Something is symbolic. You know, I was really struck by the whole, what was it, Martha Graham dance in like, I think in the 40s, where Merce Cunningham was actually part of the company in doing um, Aaron Copeland's. Appalachian Spring, I think it was. It was a, it was a dance that completely redefined America, you know, defined post-war modern America. And so I went to, and actually I just wrote her a note because her film, Elizabeth Streb's film, Born to Fly, is just aired. And so originally we went to Elizabeth Streb and said, you know, could you imagine a dance on this vertical farm? Because, you know, the idea that we've rotated this farm 90 degrees and the idea that Elizabeth Streb kind of often considers the wall, the ground, just seemed like such a perfect match. And unfortunately, and really sadly for me, the that didn't in the end, materialized for a bunch of reasons. But we still actually will have farmers farming the fields. They're actually arborists, so they'll be on ropes, but they're not doing a performance. And, I, you know, it's not too late for that to happen. But, you know, it was like one of um, these buildings are composed of about a thousand ideas. And if you can get about 700 of them built, you're doing really well. So that was just one of the 300 that didn't manage to make it. I wanted to ask a little bit about, you're talking about the, just the sheer fraction of plans that you have and how, of course, it's impossible to get everything you want done, but you make all these hopes and dreams and hope and wish that, you know, the vast majority of them get happen or at least half of them. But um, I wanted to talk a little bit about how this 
whole expo was planned initially. I was under the impression that there was an initial plan before just time and money got in the way to kind of reopen the waterways of Milan and use them to kind of navigate people to and from the different pavilions. Did your design have a prior incarnation where it had to integrate that kind of master planning or did it come in after the kind of tabula rasa design had come in where it was a more open field of concrete that you had a little bit more freedom to build on? Well, you know, that was an early idea and I think it's actually a very beautiful idea. And then the first idea that I know of on the site that the expo is currently located on was a plan by Jacques Herzog and I think Stefano Bore as well, which from the air would look very similar to the plan that's there, except his notion was that every national site would be exactly the same size. So there were not large sites and small sites. We're in a sort of medium-sized site. You know, Switzerland has a much bigger site than we do, for example. And that every site would be tented, covered with the same kind of tenting that covers the main decomanus, the main spine, pedestrian spine. And that countries would come in and basically build small temporary buildings underneath this tenting and that all the money that they would have spent on the pavilion could go towards much more productive conferences and demonstrations and science and all the rest so that it would, so that the the expo would actually produce a body of knowledge and perhaps even more than just a body of knowledge that made it seem worth the effort and i think that that's a brilliant idea and i think he's a brilliant guy and had a brilliant idea except for one small thing no nation would participate in an expo in which they didn't get to express something rather bold about their national identity. And I think that's sort of the missing link in the Herzog plan. And so when the plan was altered to remove that kind of uniformity and remove that modesty of pavilions, that's when I think national, you know, nations started to commit to it. It may be, uh, I think I think he called it um, a vanity fair. And I think that that's, again, almost 100% right. It is, identity and vanity aren't necessarily the same thing, but they're related. The idea that nations come out there to witty or unwittingly express something really important about their national identity is, I think, everything an expo is. I mean, that's nearly the entire idea. And it's fantastic to see how good and also how not so good these pavilions are, but all of them say something really important about national identity. Sometimes it may be kind of comic, but and, and hopefully ours does as well. But that seems to me to be enormously worthwhile. And, you know, Another person asked, why in this age when you and I are speaking, you know, through the internet and virtually all the rest of the information in the world is, is transmitted that way, why would you want to spend the kind of resources, and we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe a billion for all I know, to create this city in which maybe 200 buildings are built, about half of them being national pavilions and half of them being something else. Yeah, it's quite an extraordinary effort. And then, of course, six months later, nearly everything is removed. And the big question is, then what? So why, like Olympics, why go to the trouble of doing that in this day and age? And I think that there's still real value to the kind of analog and face-to-face -face contact that one has at these sorts of fairs. It requires travel. It requires a real commitment. But once there, I think that the, the kind of corporal, the real physical presence of these buildings in competition with each other, let's say, especially as designs, is actually very meaningful. And six months of involvement, you know, especially for the community that can go back again and again, the people that live in Milan, actually does produce a body of knowledge and actually does transmit a set of principles or ideas or relationships far better in a way or far more powerfully, let's say, than the internet can for these sorts of events.
I would absolutely agree with you that for a premise such as innovation and food, the physical representation of these things is incredibly important and really not something that you can translate over the internet or digitally because, and we're in the US, we're kind of the most, or we're particularly prepped to understand that concept because of our incredibly infamous poor relationship with food, how people make fun of Americans for having, you know, an obsession with preservation or for preservatives and health foods while at the same time consuming terrible fast food and being the producers of a kind of food culture that is largely looked down on on a global scale. What comes to mind first when you were talking about these kind of heavily identified national pavilions for food, two things that I thought of were Monsanto's influence at Disneyland and early Disneyland. Monsanto, the giant agricultural um, company, had a a ride, a sponsored ride at um, Disneyland that was supposed to kind of both inculcate you into the beauty of industrial agriculture while also, you know, wanting you to buy Monsanto projects and the happy package of Disneyland. And not to make the direct analogy between uh, Disneyland and the State Department, but the fact that you're working, your client is this incredibly powerful and very heavily vested institution where yes, you are creating this national identity, but it's incredibly politicized and it's impossible to to make all of the political engagements around food and agricultural apparent in one structure. So I wanted to know how you feel, especially walking through now that now that the expo is ongoing, walking through these other pavilions, do you feel like you're learning something about each individual nation's agricultural and approach to food? Or do you feel like this already very political conversation is just infinitely more complicated than we can ever represent through this type of fair? Well, I'll answer that in one second, but let me just say that it's true that the Monsanto story is fantastic. I didn't know that, but I can imagine it. But also, I can't remember, but I know of the 1939 General Motors Pavilion by Norman Belgetti's, which was remarkable, which was entirely about, ultimately about transportation, and yet set a pattern for all these sorts of experiences that we are having now or have had over the last um, 60 or 75 years in these sorts of exhibits. It was really, you know, it was a kind of piece of genius in terms of presentation and had incredible lasting impact albeit for General Motors. So I think that the fact of corporate involvement doesn't necessarily remove the art. It sometimes, as you point out, may embed a message. Surprisingly, this may be surprising, but in fact, I think that the overwhelming attitude at the State Department and especially at the local uh, consul, you know, there's a consul uh, in Milan and the consul general there, Philip Rieker, has said over and over again, he said, this is public diplomacy for us. This is the way that you can actually talk to people in a sort of non-institutional way. I mean, in a kind of less formal, more uh, egalitarian way about the things that are important to you. And I thought that that's, I think that's actually a very good way to think about it. It's not so much about exhibiting power. One person said, and I thought this was actually a really interesting observation. He said that he thought that the U.S. pavilion was really the most powerful, exhibited power. And I said, why? Because in fact, I think it's actually rather open and kind of transparent and it's not monumental in a typical sense. And he said, well, actually, that's why it appears so powerful because it's so confident. It's confident enough to be open and to be transparent transparent and to expose everything about itself, bones, warts, ducts, pipes, and so on. And I think that that's a very interesting idea that there's a kind of confidence in that sort of transparency. I would say as well that that the monumentality or the, the lack of 
singular monumentality of the pavilion, I think is a better way to think about the variety of opinions about all the issues that you talk about, you know, all the sort of food-related issues, because there are things that the U.S. does and things that the government supports, but there's also, you know, a gigantic industry, a huge agricultural and food industry of the U.S., and everyone isn't exactly towing and, you know, pulling in the same direction. There's lots of people doing lots of things. So you could almost argue that even though I find the whole lack of government funding really surprising and really difficult, you could argue that having lots and lots of voices is actually better than having a single government voice. You know, the fact that corporations do demand a certain inclusion in the discussion when they give millions of dollars means that it's not just the government voice. And so turning that to your question, there are some pavilions that, that benefit enormously with a kind of singular point. The UK pavilion is a beautiful, elegant pavilion about one thing. It's about bees and, you know, the, the decline of bees and pollination and all of that. And it's a beautiful piece of art about one single thing. There are other pavilions that, that benefit from that same sort of single singularity, let's say. But so much of what you see is, in fact, kind of heavy-handed travelogues that are clearly produced by a kind of central authority rather than a kind of more open free market situation. And I don't find those better simply because they're funded. And I don't find them better because they're speaking with a single voice. Actually, I find the, the kind of multitude of voices sort of refreshing at the, at the U.S. Pavilion. I hope that answered your question, at least in part. Well, no, I think that there's a common criticism about these style, these World Fair style of expositions where people, there's just so much content present that people move around and they just feel dizzy and forget that what anything that they saw because they're just totally overwhelmed by the sheer volume of information and that kind of grabbiness that every pavilion wants. They want their their pavilion to be taken, they want people to pay attention to it and they want to attract people inside. So it's a very interesting kind of concept. And you referred to the Olympics earlier as a kind of comparable institution that people are starting to question the financial justifications for producing and hosting such a thing that I think is a just a, an, unfortunately a larger conversation that we just don't have time for, but it's something really fascinating and how we will continue to make these things educational and useful and a real tourism and urban planning opportunity opportunity for this hosting city instead of just a blighting infrastructure that gets put on the landscape and then forgotten about. So I wanted to then just move back specifically into the design of the pavilion and refer to maybe some of your previous work. Were there any projects you had been previously involved in that helped you conceptualize how you wanted to approach this design? Well, we did do a, a museum for Harley Davidson. And even though those two things sound entirely polar opposites, the idea that I had to sort of disappear in the Harley Davidson Museum and find out what it was about Harley that was much more universal, both to people who are in the culture and to people who are not yet in the culture. So inside and outside observers, it was a very long process because of you know, the circumstances of that project. But I think the um, it was very successful and actually riders, and now I'm one of them, but riders who really, you know, are kind of absolutely saturated in that culture feel really great at the museum. They love the museum. And people who've never even thought about Harley-Davidson seem to also get something important from the architecture, from the design and the kind of the urban design in that case. That's a great exercise for designing a building that's supposed to represent something even bigger, you know, American culture, American society. But it's really what, this is kind of a perfect project for me. You know, on the one hand, I've done one now. I'll probably never do another one in, in my life. It's, uh, you know, thank you very much, but one is enough. I'm really glad I did it. I'm really glad I was involved in this. But it's, you know, the architecture of identity 
is what I'm really interested in. I think, you know, there are lots of architects who are designing buildings about their own identity. And I sit in the Woolworth building looking out the window at the Frank Gehry Tower, which is called, you know, New York by Gehry. And clearly the developers of that building understood that the identity that mattered was Frank Gehry's. And I think that's a, a very clever marketing decision, but that's just not what I'm interested in doing. For me, the identity of the user, the client, the institution, and so on are much, finding out a way to make architecture speak to that is much more interesting to me. And so this project is just the next scale, a pretty big scale, obviously. You know, it's a big client. You know, the U.S. is a big client. But it is a, you know, it is a, a problem to be solved. It's not, as I said before, it's not my personal opinion of today's political situation. It's not my job to talk about the things that are, or my particular view of these things. It's really my job to kind of crystallize the kind of optimism, the aspiration, and what the U.S. actually can be, and express that in a building. And I think Given the way people are moving through it, you know, obviously because it's the U.S., a lot of people are attracted to it. Some people, some Italians have told me that their friends will visit the U.S. pavilion before they visit the Italian pavilion. And so the idea that we can move a lot of people through it, educate them, entertain them, and give them a kind of wow is without making them stand in line. The worst thing, it seems to me, would have been a U.S. pavilion completely crowded in the front with a queue that people were baking in the sun and just miserable. So I didn't want the first thing you see about this pavilion to be a line, the difficulty of getting in, because, you know, the metaphor is just too obvious. So the idea that people can move through this, that, it, that there's a ramp up, you know, that the ramp is made of... Uh, I, I don't know if you realize this, but the ramp that we've created is made of the salvaged lumber from the Coney Island boardwalk. So even that as a kind of an iconic path, you know, as a as an American icon, as an interface between entertainment and leisure and food, you know, each one of these elements that I think uh, help people navigate this pavilion, and it is a more complicated pavilion than others. It has to do more than lots of other pavilions. Each one of these icons, the vertical farm, the digital glass roof, the boardwalk and so on, are really intended to be a bit of a message in their own right. You put them all together and you get a bit of the, the kind of collage that is America. You know, Jim, the, um, just a quick comment and a question. One of the things I appreciated about your referencing the Harley-Davidson Museum and the pavilion is the ease at which you seem to be able to work with design disciplines outside of architecture to create these spaces that resonate with people pretty well. The question I had was, if you don't mind, one, I was looking at your website and one of the things that struck me, and because we're going to the AIA convention today, and I've been pretty critical, and I think or many of us on the podcast have been pretty critical about the AIA regarding uh, human rights. And I noticed your blog piece. And from that, I, I I got a great sense of you as a, as an individual uh, and as an architect and how you think and how you are able to craft uh, beautiful buildings and beautiful structures and still you're a fellow and still find that it's critical for us as members of the uh, professional organization that we are critical when they fall short of our expectations. Could you talk a little bit about that piece that you wrote on architecture and death? Sure. I have to admit that I was alerted to this by Michael Kimmelman's piece in The Times, just kind of describing this conundrum that the AIA had about not being willing to advise or to take a position on any building type so that, you know, execution chambers were not something that the AIA was even willing to take a position on, while the AMA has prescribed its members from prescribing anything for executions, even though you could argue that a doctor could limit suffering in an execution, whereas an architect, I mean, frankly, 
the idea that we can make anything better is kind of ludicrous when you're thinking about, you know, a, an execution chamber. It's like what, better lighting, better acoustics. I mean, really, what, what, what? So the idea, the idea that even in the extreme, the AIA wouldn't take a position on this felt so wrong to me. It's also coming at a time when the AIA is trying to reimagine itself. There's been a huge repositioning that's been going on. And it just was astonishing to me that as part of the repositioning, the adoption, sorry, of, you know, a strong moral stance, even in the just for the most extreme examples, seemed, you know, seemed beyond their reach. They really were unwilling to criticize or to deny, you know, business to any one of their members for something. And so I made a kind of, I made a, first I, I, I was just pointed it out and linked everybody to Michael Kimmel's article and then just decided that, well, in that case, maybe we should just change the nature of these competitions and I don't have it in front of me and, I, you know, everyone can read it, but why don't we just award, you know, the... Uh, the best detention camp. <laughs> the best detention camp, exactly. Because, you know, once you're value-free or once you're, you know, in a moral vacuum, well, gee, I mean, the best detention camp really is something. And, you know, there was this, there was an exhibit in Rome at uh, Zaha Hadid's uh, Maxi Museum called... Architecture in Uniform. It's also a book. It's a fantastic book. And it was a comprehensive show of all the things that were built and all the things that were made and designed during wartime. And of course, part of one room of the exhibit was about death camps. And, you know, there was a very strong, and one another was about the Pentagon, and there are lots of, you know, designs of automobiles and bomb shelters and all the rest. But the idea that at a certain level, certainly at the level of this exhibition, that, you know, concentration camps had to be designed, they had to be efficient, they had to solve certain architectural and social problems. And the idea that that's just another building is really shocking to me. So I couldn't resist writing something about the AIA. The AIA is, you know, I've been a member for a really long time. As you say, I'm a fellow. I think it's an important organization, but it's also important not to be slavish to it. You know, it's funny, just as a quick aside, I remember some years ago, I was in Atlantic City for a um, concert. And at the same time at the casino, there was an exhibition on torture at this casino. And I was just dumbstruck that there was actually at the end of the exhibit on torture, there was a gift shop. Oh, God. <laughs> I was waiting for the punchline. Yeah. <laughs> and what, and now you have to tell us what were the, the trinkets for sale? There was some, some tasteless kinds of things, but a lot of reading material. I actually bought a book about, uh, I think it was about the Inquisition. Um, so there was actually some inf information actually to be had, but it was just the, the, the juxtaposition of a, of a, an exhibit on torture at a casino. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't. <laughs> My mind couldn't get around that idea. It's, it's oh, very it's funny. All, all entertainment. Jim, I really appreciate you uh, writing this blog post and taking this kind of stand. And thank you, Ken, for bringing it up. I mean, I think that, as you say, the AA is in the midst of a major repositioning right now. And I think that examining these questions of our ethics and practice is needs to be a huge part of the discussion. So thank you for... Sure. For writing that. And we'll link to it in the show notes so that our listeners can go read it as well. Oh, thanks. Um, so maybe I better go edit it now. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's at great. least semi-literate. Like oh, thanks. Great right. as is. You know, you write these things and you put them out there and then you move on. So I kind of, I kind of forget, but I'm glad you saw it. It's important. So I want to end on sort of a lighter note. I uh, Going back to the food, I think food has been a real topic lately for a whole lot of people. And I just, I wondered if you had any kind of... Um, Really a story that you learned about the food production or anything about, about food that really blew your mind that you learned during the, the researching for this project? And then I also wanted to just ask you, what are you eating these days? What's your favorite food? <laughs> <laughs> well, somehow, you know, I spent an awful lot of time in Italy in the past year and somehow, and I, and, you know, 
the food there is just fantastic. I live in Milan. I'm about to go back in another week and spend as much time there as I can. Somehow I've managed to lose weight. I don't know how that's possible because the average level of food is so high. And in my neighborhood, the average bread store, the average cheese store, all these things, it's really astonishing the level of quality that everyone expects. And so, you know, that's an amazing thing to realize everyone who travels realizes there's good food kind of everywhere, but there's barely any bad food in Italy. And I mean, of course, obviously there is, but you know, it's amazing to me how a society, how a culture can, and it's not that it's expensive, where people are not spending nearly as much for food as we are here in New York. It's really instructive to me that a culture can value things about food so highly that it raises the average level. It, it You know, the bar is set so high. The bar for an average food store in Italy is almost as high as the bar for the highest level of food store here in the U.S. And that's an amazing thing that's just kind of happened. And, and the person who really started this whole project, Mitchell Davis, the executive vice president at the James Beard Foundation, probably has written his doctoral thesis on this, but it is an amazing thing to watch and to live in. So that's not an expo thing. That's a kind of cultural thing, but it, that's why it's the perfect place. That's why Milan today is the perfect place for this expo. And someone asked me recently, you know, would you advise people to go? And the answer is absolutely yes. You know, it, it is the, especially anybody interested in design or food, maybe even more if you're interested in design, because the the uh, identity parade, the design competition out there at the expo is really quite astonishing. And in addition, the Prada Foundation just opened, which is absolutely remarkable. There's a David Chipperfield Museum, Armani Silos is about to open. So there's all sorts of things going on in Milan for anybody interested in design. We wish we could go. <laughs> I think we all would love to poke our noses in there. It sounds like a great opportunity. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about the expo and in your pavilion. It's something that we really think is a, it's an interesting situation right now in particular with this discussion around World's Fairs and Olympics and such. So thanks again so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Great talking with you. Thanks for joining thank us. Thank you, Jim. Thanks. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was such a good conversation with James Bieber. He's great to talk to. And Ken, I was so glad that you went and did the research and found that blog post about ethics. I feel like that was such an important thing to talk about. And I'm so glad that you brought it up. Well, you know, since we were that day, we were all, except for you, Donna, we were all going to the AA convention. I thought it was important to, when I saw that that blog post on his website the, the night before, I thought, wow, here's a fellow in the AIA, quite successful in his own right, taking a, a principled stand with regards to our professional association, something that I think we've done enough here as professionals talking about where the AIA stands on certain issues regarding human rights, RIFRA in Indiana. And so I thought it was important to, you know, bring some attention to the issues that are kind of driving our profession, as Donna pointed out and uh, James pointed out, uh, repositioning our professional organization. I don't think these things get talked about enough. Why this is such a difficult topic for the AIA to get around and kind of nail down some language to kind of be, I mean, it's in their code of ethics, but it's really, it needs to be fleshed out a little bit more and made uh, made real so we can have a really good principled stand on issues like this. So it was a really good. It was. And I love that he was willing to just go ahead and put it out there with his name attached to it and say, I've been an AIA member for a long time. He's an FAIA. And we'll put a link in the show notes to the blog post because he, he raises a funny scenario of alternate awards for things like best designed torture chamber or something. And uh, it's a really, it's a, it's a really pretty bold stance to take. And I'm glad he took it. And I have said on the podcast before, I think the AIA needs to be a little more bold in how we make our ethical statements. We, I think we should. One thing just for our listeners who want to get a little bit more 
information about James Bieber and Bieber Architects. They actually have one of the best Arconnect firm profiles on Arconnect, including a really nice collection of posts that James made about this 100 Ideas project that it's actually images taken from, I believe, scanned from his sketchbook, just listing 100 different ideas to improve, I believe, the city of New York. So we'll make sure to include a link to the Bieber Architects firm profile. There's also, there's a video with James and there's, a, they've uploaded a bunch of their projects and all the related news and stuff. So take a look at that. And for all the firms out there, if you're wondering what a really good Arconnect firm profile looks like, this is a great example. Yeah, I'd actually seen that 100 Projects post before and was like really interested by it. And it's just also always so refreshing to see on, especially on a firm profile, that kind of personal work instead of more of the super curated like press images of just completed projects. So I really appreciated that. And it did help me kind of get to know Bieber's work a little bit more before we talked to him. But I think that's uh, pretty much all we have for this week. Should we go into endorsements? Let's do Donna, I know that you have an endorsement. I actually have two quick little ones, and they're both, well, one's from the news, and it's um, a post by Alexander Walter called Not All Sidewalks Are Created Equal, and it talks about in uh, Washington, D.C., how there's a law about incommoding the sidewalk, which basically means blocking the sidewalk, and how it is used frequently to just arrest people, basically to arrest them, to shake them down, to pay a fine, and then let them go. And it's ridiculous. And I have a lot of comments about it and about basically our attitude as a society towards sidewalks in general that I'm going to be posting on that news item as comments. I haven't gotten to them yet, but sidewalks are hugely important to me. The other one I wanted to mention was a thread in the discussion forums by, started by Nick Weaver called, Whose Work Are You Currently Interested In? And it just seemed like a nice, simple question and way to, to put up some work of current firms that people like. So I hope more people will contribute to it so we can get a little roundup of some of what people are finding interesting right now. Ken, what do you have? You know, I'm not sure if we do too much of this, but the, the one thing I really liked on the website recently was uh, Michael Jansen's posting of his deconstructing his chairs. He did these images of, of various chairs. I'm, I can't quite figure out if they're paintings or if they're collaged images, but this is just such fun things to look at on the website that I really enjoyed looking at them. So that's kind of what I like right now. Well, I was just going to say, I love the chairs. I, I think those chair images are great because they're in that place that they're almost recognizable, but a little bit not. So yeah, they're fantastic. Paul, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to plug a feature that we published on Arconnect from a few years ago that my friend Katya Tylovich wrote. It was an interview with him about his work. So if you're interested in those chairs and some of his other projects, which can be definitely on the wacky end of the, of the uh, spectrum, check that out. Amelia, do you have any endorsements this week? I do. And we started on a movie note. I didn't intend to end on a movie note, but I have a movie recommendation. So I'd like to endorse this film called The Babadook. It is an Australian horror film it centers around the story of a mother and her son. The mother's husband dies in the car crash on the way to the hospital where the woman is going to deliver to the son. So their whole life that the son has been alive, he hasn't known his father. And in the dealing of their collective grief, they kind of accidentally summon this creature called the Babadook that kind of represents grief and dealing with loss and haunts them in their house. And I'm bringing it up here in this podcast is because the architecture of the house is represented in the perfect haunted house creepy way. It's a horror film that could take place at any time. It's not at all, you know, near future techno dystopia. It's really a horror film for any era that just deals with very, that very universal and human um, ideas of grief and dealing with grief. And the Babadook is just this spirit that haunts them 
in a very creepy way. But the house itself, just in the way the house is rendered and the interiors of the house are presented in the film are just jaw-droppingly beautiful and suspenseful and so important for the actual perpetuation of the plot. And there's totally reminded me too of, of a piece Nicholas previously published in his Architecture of the Anthropocene series about where he uses the House of Usher as a kind of humanized version of or a, an objectified version of human feeling of where the house kind of starts to exhibit the qualities of rot and emotional decay that the person inside of it is going through. And it's a beautiful film, super creepy. I wouldn't say it's like, if you don't like horror, you probably won't like this film, but it's nothing like The Exorcist or nothing like super scary, but full, full endorsement of it. I think it's a great film for both the setting and the architecture and just the, the horror quality. It's great. Why haven't I seen this yet? Sounds like this is right up my alley. Was it on Netflix? It's on Netflix. It recently okay. got released on Netflix as like some big indie horror kind of unleashed that they did. I've been hearing Baba Duke a lot lately. I wasn't quite sure what this film was about, but uh, your description has made me very Well, when the Baba Duke visits you, Paul, you hear his name. <laughs> oh, so. man. See, it, uh, <laughs> the, movie, the first review I read of it scared the crap out of me. And I don't really like scary movies. So I kind of thought I'm just going to take a pass on this one. But now the way you've described it, Amelia, it does sound interesting. And I understand the drawings are very beautiful, too. Yes. If you ever thought, well, of course, children's books can be incredibly creepy. But if you ever thought children's pop-up books could be creepy, mm. then you will be confirmed with this film. I have never been more terrified by a pop-up book. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. I'm I'm on the fence about this one. I don't know. See, too bad you're not in L.A. You could come by the ArcConnect office. We could put it on the projector and, you know, be a very safe environment. We could keep you feeling uh, warm and safe. Yeah. Is there bourbon? Is there, if there's bourbon, maybe. There is bourbon. There's always bourbon. <laughs> bourbon and horror films. It's not like Prosecco. Yeah. It's not like Prosecco. There's always bourbon. That's right. We're running out of Prosecco <laughs> in the world. Paul, what do you got? Well, my uh, one endorsement, there's been a lot of really awesome content on Arconnect lately. So there's a lot of stuff. I mean, you should just go and, and browse around. But the one endorsement I'd like to leave is a really fun event that I unfortunately was not able to make. It was uh, is happening like as we were landing in L.A. from Atlanta. But Nicholas Carodi in our office attended and did a great piece summarizing the event and writing about it. It, it. The event was called One Night Stand. And it was an event that was organized by some R connectors, including one of our contributors, Anthony Mori. And it was basically, it's an exhibition of work by architects and artists in different rooms in a Holiday Lodge motel in Los oh. Angeles, uh, MacArthur Park area. And it was themed on, you know, one night stand. It was very sexually kind of themed. And um, each room had a different type of installation or artwork that was displayed. And judging by the photos I saw and the coverage from Nicholas, it looked like a really, really fun event. So hopefully we'll see more of those types of events pop up. This one was titled One Night Stand LA. And so hopefully, fingers crossed, there will be other regional um, incarnations of this where they're able to kind of occupy for a brief moment a single space. I was hoping it was called One Night Stand MacArthur Park because then it maybe it could have uh, implied more parts of LA might uh, pop up because there's a lot of motels like that that would be provide the perfect venue for this type of this type of show. Yeah. So yeah, that's about it. The pop-up art installation thing is getting more and more traction, which is fun to see. Pop up everything. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, think that, that are in an unexpected venue and they're only there for a short time. I find it, it very exciting as a way to get people more engaged with going out to the city because the alternative is you stay home and watch Netflix, right? You watch The Babadook on Netflix and never go out and intermingle with people at all. Donna, how did you know what mm. I should have done that day <laughs> <laughs> that I chose to watch The Babadook? Maybe people should have pop-up 
Netflix watching session. You could do that too. That would actually be quite fun. Yeah. First meeting at the Arcanact office. There will be bourbon. Call us everyone with your suggestions of what our what pop-up Netflix viewing parties architects should have in particular. So I'm going mm-hmm. to see some postmodern dance tonight. So Oh, yeah. you are so cultured. <laughs> At a bowling alley. <laughs> really? No, really? That's so good. Now I'm interested. Yeah. Like on the slippery alleys? No, and no, taking advantage? No, actually, oh. there's, a, there's a place here in Minneapolis called Bryant Lake Bowl, and it's a restaurant bowling alley performance space. So you can go out and bowl in like maybe 10 lanes. There's bowling, and there's a bar, and good food. And um, yeah, so there's every, I think it's every third or fourth Wednesday, there's um, some um, performance. So I'm going to see that tonight for my... Occasion out. Sounds very David Lynch. <laughs> it's fun. A dance performance at a bowling alley. <laughs> I can just imagine like uh, 20 tap dancers all lined up <laughs> on different lanes. Not that tap dance is, is uh, postmodern dance, but anyways. So that's it for this week. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to my co-hosts. If you have any questions or comments or suggestions, reach us on Twitter, hashtag ArcNextSessions. You can send us an email to connect at ArcNect.com. We pay attention to everything, so don't worry about that message getting slipped under the rug. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating us on iTunes, giving us a, a review. We love that. And uh, until next week. Bye-bye. Until next week. Bye. Bye, everybody. See you next week. Bye.